Thanks for tuning into Journey. Everyone is welcome at the table. We are a community being shaped by Jesus, experiencing and practicing humility, curiosity, belonging, and generosity. We hope to be a people who embrace the way of Jesus by listening first, speaking second, loving freely, and giving generously. Hey, good morning. My name's Mike. I want to welcome you to our community. Good morning. It's delightful to see you all. Um, you, if you're new, you picked a heck of a time to show up. We are starting a series of conversations on the big scary book of Revelation. And we've been building towards this by studying kind of what the Bible says about itself. Really high level sort of conceptual uh, understandings about what the Bible's for and how is it to be understood. And reminder, Kevin has a class coming up Tuesday that's kind of the so what part of that whole conversation. You can sign up on Journey TN. But we put together this amazing cloud graphic for you and a very original <laughs> title uh, for the series called Revelation. If you want to know where your tithe money goes, that's where it's going, right there. And I mean, worth every penny, I can tell you that right now. Now, what? My wife says we could have chosen a different font. Well, you know, honey, is that Ariel? Okay. Darling, this is going to take a long time if, um, if, if we're going to have a cover. Oh, my Lord. Okay, for those of you watching online, my beautiful, lovely wife just said, no, so my response to my beautiful, lovely wife was, hey, this is going to take a long time if, you know, you continue to talk to me. And she said, now you know how we all feel. And so she speaks for the masses. Well said. Hey, man, football starts soon, so I I could get out of here quick. Now, I want to welcome you, particularly if you're new. uh, We're a community that really enjoys digging in and struggling with the text together. And so there's a class going on right now where folks from the first service kind of go and discuss what we were talking about with Kevin. We do a podcast where we'll answer questions that kind of come in, and then if you want to raise your hand, uh, Ellen has the microphone today, and so look out. Remember, we hold the microphone, not you. And that's for reasons that, um, because we talk about you when you're not here. And uh, we've just made that decision. So, you know who you are. All right, um, what we want to do today is lay some groundwork. This is going to be an info dump, all right? It will get better, but this is painful. This is 35 minutes of awful, all right? And you're like, what's different? Correct. Correct. Nothing new. But we're going to go through a bunch of slides, and, and here's the reason, all right? Revelation is one of those books. I grew up watching scary movies. There were A Thief in the Night was one that was called, that took a, a certain view of Revelation, declared that was the only view of Revelation, or the only biblical view of Revelation, and then scared the bejesus out of everybody into saying yes to Jesus, I personally think that's not the best way to view the book. And because Revelation has been um, used to induce so much fear in the lives of Christians, I think we need to back, back it up and start from the foundational principles about how do we understand a book of the Bible, all right? 
So this is the most important message we'll do, but the least interesting, because we're going to talk about uh, genre. <laughs> it's just so exciting. So, not surprisingly, there are many different approaches to Revelation. Let's fire those up, sweet Joe. Um, there is a futurist, and that's the one at least I was raised in, that, that everything from Revelation 4 onward is going to be fulfilled in the future. Um, and that it's a blueprint of the end times, in essence. Uh, the historicist view of Revelation says, no, Revelation has been, it was actually a prediction of church history. As history is unfolded, there are these different eras and peaks and valleys in church history that were foretold in Revelation. So the futurist view says Revelation is still to be unfolded. The historicist view has been, no, actually what we have in Revelation is a record of church history from the time of Jesus until now. The preterist view, the preterist comes from a word that means past, and it's the opposite of the futurist view. It says that everything in Revelation outside of chapters 21 and 22 happened in the first century. That this was about the rise of the Roman Empire and emperor worship and about the destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of the Romans. And then the idealist view says, no, no, guys, this isn't about like history at all. This is about the timeless battle between good and evil. And so it's applicable to all time because it's not about any time. Does that make sense? Understand the four different views. Most of us, uh, if, if we've been raised in kind of American evangelicalism, have been saturated in the futurist view. And so we just want to take some time to ask the question, well, how do we know which one of these approaches is right? To answer that, I have to reference something Kevin introduced last week, which is the idea of genre. Beautiful word, genre. It just means a literary style. All right, so here's Google's definition, and you know, Google's never wrong. It's a category of artistic, musical, or literary composition characterized by particular stylistic um, forms and content. All right, so we're familiar with genre all the time. All right, so if I come up to you and I say, hey, uh, two men walked into a bar. What's coming next? What form of speech? A joke. If I say to you, roses are red and violets are blue, what am I about to give you? A bad poetry, right? Uh, if I say the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want, what's that? That's a psalm, Psalm 23, right? Very famous piece of the Bible. Right, if I say, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, Star Wars, right, or fantasy, right, if I say, once upon a time, and they lived happily ever after, fairy tale, all of those are different genres of speech, would you agree? So we're familiar with genres, it's just conventions that we have in the way that we communicate. Now, to illustrate genre, particularly for those of you under 30, I want to pull forward a relic from our past. Go ahead and fire it up. This is something, this is something called a bookstore. And uh, what? Really? We're, we're going to argue about Barnes and Noble versus Borders when they're both almost out of business? Fine. Let's, let's rearrange deck chairs on the Titanic while we're at it. Absolutely. So this is one example, evidently not the most popular one, of a bookstore. 
And, and for those of you under 30, um, you would go into these places um, and you would touch physical paper with bindings on it and then you, you would purchase the book and walk out with a physical hard copy of such a thing. It's shocking, I know. But, um, and, and it wouldn't be read to you in your car. You would have to pick it up and you would have to read the book. Now, I know this sounds you know, horribly anachronistic, but there was a, a helpful part to a bookstore, and that was how they arranged the books on the inside. There were these really helpful green signs that segmented the bookstore into different types of literature. And so if you're in the fiction and literature section, what are you reading? What are you reading? A story, a novel. Does it have to be true? No. By definition, it's not true. If you go to the nonfiction section, what are you reading there? A story that purports to be true, right? If you go to the science fiction section, what are you reading there? Star Wars, yes. Yes, but is that different than the science section? Of course. So they had these really helpful places where you could read poetry or self-help or philosophy or religion, and they told you what it was. The problem with the Bible is the Bible is an entire bookstore between two covers, but they, they don't have the really helpful green signs. So we're all told this is just one book, and you're supposed to read it the same way all the way through. But if you read every book in, in a Barnes & Noble bookstore the same way all the way through, you would miss out on a whole lot of stuff. Would you agree? So, so we've used this example before, but what you're holding in your hands when you're holding the Bible is a library of different kinds of genre. There's narrative, there's poetic, there's um, a parabolic, you know, the parables, there's apocalyptic, which we're going to talk about in just a second, there's prophetic. And so we're not told, or at least we haven't been, we haven't been taught to pay attention for the genre clues that are in the text telling us about how to read what we're supposed to read. All right? Does this make sense? This concept is so unbelievably important because how you approach Revelation depends on the genre it is. Well, how do you know what the genre is? I'm so glad you asked. We're going to spend 35 minutes reading from the text. Don't look back, Justina. It's, uh, do I stand in your classroom when you're teaching middle school math and say, when are we going to use this? I have done that, yes, but that's a different thing. <laughs> all right, so all of that is not even, that's like just to set us up for we're going to cover the three different genres that Revelation is. And that determines how we interpret it. All right? Make sense? This is Mike inventing things. This is like what, this is straight from the scripture. So let's go to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 1. Are you ready? Giddy up. The revelation from Jesus Christ. And that verb there, from, it could also, well not verb, but it could also be of or both. It could be of Jesus or from Jesus or both. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him 
to show his servants what must soon take place. Now, the first word, let me introduce you to the first word of the book of Revelation. Are you ready? We're going we're gonna to even do it in Greek because we're fancy like that. There it is. Apocalypsis. All right? That's the Greek in the white. That's the transliteration. And the, that's literally the first word. Now, what's fascinating is that it is in Greek, it is in the singular case, which means this is not revelations. All right? If any of you call this book revelations, we have shock collars that will be placed around your wrists as we go. This is one revelation, and it's from about and to Jesus of Nazareth. All right? We'll get into that next week. But this is one revelation, and the word apocalypsis means revelation or unveiling. All right? Um, a, a, an unveiling like this. So there's a story in the Old Testament about Elijah, I believe who was preparing to fight a battle. The foes outnumbered the godly folks. Elijah, I think, is freaking out because we're going we're gonna to lose this one big. And then all of a sudden, God sort of opens up the heavens and they see all of these chariots and divine warriors. That's an unveiling. The unveiling is getting a heavenly perspective of, of what is happening on earth. Does that make sense? Now, apocalypsis isn't just the first word of Revelation, but it's also a kind of literature called apocalyptic literature, which was very common in the, the days of Jesus, both in Roman and Greek forms and in Jewish forms. All right, this, is th this next 10 minutes is going to be super painful because I want to go over eight characteristics of apocalyptic literature. This tells us it's apocalyptic literature. There are eight things that are true about apocalyptic literature. Therefore, these are things that are true of Revelation. Make sense? Okay, painful. Number one, usually a pseudonym is involved, although with John we don't think that's the case. But you'll read like the book of Enoch, a very famous Old Testament character. We know Enoch was not alive, although he never died in the Old Testament. But they will usually be attributed to an anonymous author. We don't think it's the case with John. Number two, they take a narrative form. They're told in the form of a story. They're, they're not just cyclical, repeated things, but there's a progression, a, an intro, middle, conclusion, if you will. Point number three is the biggest point. We're going to spend about five minutes on this one. Apocalyptic literature is filled with symbols. All of the numbers and the colors and many other things in Revelation are symbolic. That is normal for apocalyptic literature. So when we get to three and a half, or seven, or a thousand, or 144,000, we're not counting. Those numbers are numbers that stand for something, all right? And the reason we know that John is communicating in symbols is because he tells us. Notice the second part of verse one. The, the, the first part says, the revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place, he made it known. Now that phrase, made it known, flip over to the Greek, because we're just, we're, we're going to do this over and over. Nope. But to the list, remember to the list that had the Greek at the bottom of it. There we go. That little phrase, made it known, is a Greek word that comes from the Septuagint reading of Daniel, which means to signify or symbolize. So what John is saying is that I received a communication about and from Jesus full of symbols that I'm communicating to you. And there's a big, long argument for this, right? If you want to read Gregory Beale, 
He's showing how this whole intro of chapter one ties into Daniel and how Daniel should be understood. But the point he makes is that this word, this Greek word, made it known, means made it known through symbolic language. Right? The book of Revelation is like a political cartoon. All right? Now, let me show you a couple of these. Here we have an eagle sharpening his talons, or her talons, sitting on a stool. Imagine if 2,000 years from now, you see this image, and you're like, hey, what's that an image of? And you say, a really muscular eagle sharpening its talons with a nail file sitting on a stool. Would that be the correct interpretation of this image? No, say it louder. It would not. Why? So what's the eagle? United States, America. What, what is the sharpening of the talon? This was, yes, this was right after 9-11. So this was when we were all super hurt, mourning, crying out for justice. This was a graphic depiction of the American military's readiness to go exact revenge against the people who harmed us. Correct? Is it an eagle with a nail file on a stool? Yes, but no. Correct? This is how the symbols work in the book of Revelation. So if you're sitting there like, oh, it had 18 heads and a bunch of wings, and then you picture something that had 18 heads and a bunch of wings, you're doing the same thing the person would do 2,000 years from now, going, well, it's just an eagle on a stool. It's not an eagle on a stool. It's about a country seeking military justice. Correct? Does that make sense? This is so important. Because the people who understand Revelation differently will say, hey, we need to take it literally. Well, we can take this literally, and it's an eagle on a stool with a nail file. But you miss its meaning if you do so. Next slide. Just a couple more examples to prove the point. 2,000 years from now, we have an old dude in a hat who looks sort of scared and overwhelmed. And there's a donkey yelling and an elephant yelling. 2,000 years from now, if I were to just say, well, it's a dude being yelled at by two animals on his shoulders, would that convey the meaning? No. Who's the dude? Uncle Sam, which stands for? United States. Who's the donkey? Democratic political party. Who's the elephant? And when they're both yelling in Uncle Sam's ear, what is, that, what is the meaning conveyed? Kind of gridlock? Paralysis? Right? So if I were to say 2,000 years from now, oh man, Revelation says it's a dude with a donkey and an elephant. Oh, we got to watch out for donkeys and elephants. And you go, well, that's taking it literally. Would you have missed the point entirely? Yes. This is how apocalyptic literature works. Two more to overmake it because I need to convince you. All right, who's that guy? We just met him. What's he recruiting for? What war? World War II, right? If I just say, hey, there's an old dude that wants you for something called the army, right? You wouldn't get the full resonance of like, hey, this was a battle for like the fate of the world. Next, 
And then there's this one. If I were just to say 2,000 years to know, hey, here's a green lady, her hand's on fire, and she looks embarrassed or sad, and it, there's some sort of never forget thing. Would I understand that? No, what was the significance of that? That was after, right after 9-11, right? And a whole country was mourning. So when we say that apocalyptic literature is symbolic, we're not saying that the symbols are referring to nothing, the symbols are referring to something, but what they're referring to would have made sense to the original audience. And that be in the same way that 2,000 years from now, we'd have to work at understanding that, we have to work at understanding this. Does that make sense? Really important point. Back to the list. Apocalyptic uh, pieces of literature employ esoteric uh, language. Esoteric just means not readily apparent, right? Symbolic or visionary language. Employs esoteric language interpreted through a heavenly intermediary. So if you read other apocalypses, there's always an angel interpreting. And when we get to the revelation of John, there is an angel interpreting many times. Apocalypses are characterized by absolute dualism. Dualism cosmically, there's good, there's bad, they're in conflict. And you're either on the good side or on the bad side, end of story. And then there's temporal, go ahead, go back if you would, Joe. There's temporal dualism, which is things are bad now, but there's an age coming where things will be better. With me? Okay, this is all normal convention for apocalyptic literature. Next slide. This is a huge one. Apocalyptic literature always treats whatever it's talking about as imminent. It could happen at any moment. So seven times we're going to read the phrase, it must soon take place. 2,000 years have gone by. But must soon take place, as we'll see next week, isn't an invitation to look at your calendar. It's an invitation to live urgency and light of the reality it discusses. It expresses a pessimistic view of the present time. Usually apocalypses are written by persecuted minorities for persecuted minorities, reminding them that their earthly persecution isn't a reflection of the heavenly reality. And then lastly, there's deter- like strict determinism in apocalypses, which means there is a preordained future and nothing can change it. God is coming to judge and to renew, period. Right? So the fir- in the first sentence, we've met a genre of literature called apocalypsis. Right or apocalypse. You with me so far? Now that already helps us to understand some of the weird stuff we're going to encounter in the book. But notice verse uh, 3. We get another clue. Blessed is the one who reads aloud. Remember the Bible was meant to be read aloud. Not Most people couldn't read. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this what? Prophecy. Now, This is where Americans have a field day. Because we hear prophecy and we think prediction. The Old Testament hears prophecy and they think warning. And that's the difference. Prophecy in the Old Testament is hardly ever about predicting the future. It's almost always about calling people to faithfulness today because of what God is about to do. 
And I'm, I'm just going to quote a scholar on this because we, we could spend so much time on how we misunderstand. But just read the prophets. They're hardly ever talking about someday in the future. They're talking about their generation being faithful because if they're not, this is what could happen. So one scholar just puts it this way. This is particularly the case when we remember that prophecy in the Old Testament wasn't primarily about predicting things. It was about presenting reality from God's point of view. The foreign nations that we fear, they're actually powerless. The idols that we worship are actually worthless false gods. And the Old Testament prophets called people to respond to that reality by being faithful to the one true God. The prophecy we're going to meet in Revelation is straight out of the Old Testament playbook. And it's the reason we don't recognize it. Because we're not very familiar with Ezekiel. We're not very familiar with Jeremiah. We're not very familiar with the Old Testament like Daniel. And so things that are straight out of the Old Testament that the original authors would have been like, oh yeah, I remember when Daniel said that, go right over our heads and we think, oh, that must be Apache helicopters. This is not how we approach the book, okay? The goal of prophetic literature in the Old Testament, read it for yourself, was never to forecast and calendarize. It was always to call the present generation to faithfulness in light of the fact that there's a heavenly reality that's different than the earthly reality we're experiencing. Are you with me on this? You don't have to buy this, but this, these are the rails we're going to run on. So it's apocalyptic, it's prophetic, and then notice in verse 4. John, comma, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, colon, grace and peace to you. Now, if you're familiar with the New Testament, what does that sound like? Yeah, a salutation. Who, who gets bonus points for salutation? That's right. How many letters does Paul start with? Paul, to the church in Philippi, grace and peace to you. That's called an epistle. And an epistle was just a formal letter that was very, very common in the first century before and beyond. And so what's fascinating is that this whole apocalyptic prophetic narrative is dressed up as a letter to seven flesh and blood churches. Grace and peace to you from, from him who is, who was, and who is to come. So there's a Trinitarian greeting that was used of Zeus, by the way. So fascinating that we pull it in here. And from the seven spirits before the throne. Seven is, a remember, symbolic number, the fullness of the spirit before the throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, all Old Testament imagery. I, John, your brother and companion, suffering uh, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are in Jesus. Right? This is a letter. Now, the key point to remember, look at me. The key point to remember about apocalyptic literature is highly symbolic, correct? The key point to remember about prophetic literature is that it's primarily designed to call the present generation to faithfulness. The key point to remember about a letter in the New Testament is that it would have made sense to the original audience. The arrogance to say that, it's only, that no one's understood the book until Americans 2,000 years later, that's just not how the Bible works, right? This would have made sense to the original audience. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy to the original audience. 
the author is interacting with two streams of content. The Old Testament, and it's something like 400 verses are in Revelation and almost 400 allusions to the Old Testament are in Revelation. And the author is also interacting with the rise of the Roman imperial cult, where I date Romans in the 90s with lots of people smarter than me, uh, who think it was written during the time of the Emperor Domitian, who was claiming for himself divine lordship. In fact, there are hymns that were sung to Domitian. They get pulled into Revelation chapter 4, sung to the one who sits on the throne. I mean, it's just genius. But we're not familiar with either of those streams, so the book for us just doesn't make sense, and we've been taught, well, I just, just should read it not like it's a bookstore, but like it's just one book. And so we end up with some of the wacky stuff. The amount of fear this book has been used to inspire, as opposed to hopeful discipleship, which was its goal, there's been, there are billions and billions of dollars made off of scaring the crap out of us. And we just want to present a view of Revelation that provokes hope. And, though, and how do we know that is an accurate view of Revelation? Well, I'm just going to argue because Revelation tells us what it is. It is an apocalyptic prophecy dressed up as a letter to seven churches. And so it's symbolic. It's um, designed to confront us with our desires to accommodate culture and adjust the faith to the world around us. And it would have made sense to the original audience. Are you with me so far? All right, any questions on this? Now, most of my answers are going to be, we're going to talk about that. Okay, but any, anything you want to just discuss very quickly? Let me see where I'm at. Okay. We're good? Okay, we did that. We did that. We did that. Nice. Okay. Okay. That was okay. Now, here's the reason. Here's the reason we go into this crazy stuff. I think, I, I personally think church people are dramatically underestimated. That, that churches sort of just cater to the inter- entertainment impulse or the self-improvement impulse. I think there's room for that, but I don't think that's ever the primary focus. I think people actually genuinely want to sink their teeth into the scriptures. And so this is seminary-level stuff we're doing, not, you know, not because we're great, but because, like, why wouldn't we? consider all of this coming to a very misunderstood book. Now, you don't have to buy it. I talked to people last service who were like, I just don't buy it. Great, the goal isn't that you buy it. The goal is that it provokes faithful discipleship to Jesus in a community. And if it does that, hallelujah. If you think there's a thousand-year millennium, great, let's diagram it. I got loads of diagrams. I happen to have a different take, and it's okay. Right? But I'm obviously going to advocate, uh, advocate for understanding Revelation in this way just for the reasons I gave. So, a couple of things as we wrap up. All right, There is a book out there. We have a book table. Um, and there is a book out there called Reading Revelation Responsibly. Brought to you by the letter R. <laughs> and it's by a guy named Michael Gorman. And if you would read one book, that's the book to read. All right, it's an intro-level book, but he's, his scholarship is just off the charts. And he has a little section that kind of summarizes the three genres that we just went over. 
where he says, here common mistakes that people make reading Revelation, and here's the antidote for them. I've adjusted that chart for you. You're welcome. Again, creative in the font department, true. And a highly stylized black background, also true. All right, mistakes in reading Revelation, and this all flows from just what we talked about. All right, it's another way of saying the same thing, but until we actually live into this reality, the rest of the book, is, we're starting off on the wrong foot. We're going to misunderstand it. So, number one mistake people make, failing to recognize apocalyptic literature and all of the symbolic meaning therein. Okay? The antidote, understanding the features of apocalyptic literature, right? Which we just spent 10 painful minutes going over. And its function in providing hope and comfort to the generation that's reading it. Next. Mistake number two, failing to take Revelation seriously as a product of and message to its own time. Its own time. It would have made sense to its people. Sure. I agree, totally. Antidote, if we're going to go clue hunting for meaning, then let's look in Asia Minor and in the late first century. All right? Next. Or, remember... The Revelation was, first of all, written by a first-century Christian for first-century Christians. And that's true of the rest of the Bible, right? This is a fundamental way to interpret the Bible. It was for them before it was for us. But somehow, when we get to Revelation, we think it was for us and not for them. Next, another mistake. Looking for arbitrary contemporary fulfillment of its symbols. So how many people have been the Antichrist so far? All right, I, Gorbachev was my first one because he had the mark on his forehead. And then Saddam Hussein was one, I know. Obama was one. Hitler was one. I mean, I, I remember 1988. For those of you under 30, that was a year in the previous century. <laughs> that, that, that it was written that a generation wouldn't go by once the like Jerusalem became a nation, or Israel became a nation again, and you could worship in Jerusalem. 40 years from 1948 was 1988, and Jesus said a generation wouldn't go by until he'd return, and there we were ready! And maybe he did come back and took four people. <laughs> and that was it, and the rest of us are now you know, doomed. I don't know! But there, there have just been this ongoing speculation of matching, well, well, okay, well, that's the European Union, and the mark of the beast must be the one currency, and we don't ever get a microchip, because that could be, and you're just like, no, that's not what the book's doing. It's a uniquely American obsession we have. So, instead of doing that antidote, we interpret Revelation symbolism, first of all, within a first century context. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't parts to be fulfilled. I think there are. Absolutely. But the first place we go isn't, hey, so let me read the newspaper and see. Next. And this is the big one. We become preoccupied with the least important issues Revelation is concerned about, like the length of the millennium and the identity of the beast. Right? The word antichrist isn't mentioned in Revelation, nor is the word rapture. So, my goal is that we would give this whole book a fresh listen. That's it. That's it. Whether you agree or not, 
that we would just sort of go, okay, let's listen to it afresh. And here's the reason it's so important, all right? Are the Christian world of which I am a part and a major contributor to, not major, but contributor to, size, yes, but, uh, you know, influence, no. Um, the, the Christian world of which I'm a part is drenched entirely and completely in fear. So many of the divisions we have are about, uh, I mean, we're, we're drenched in seeing the other as the enemy, demonizing, labeling, not loving, not serving, not blessing. I mean, think about the way we responded to viruses. And don't read this as like, hey, the fearless ones were the ones without masks. Don't. See, the fact that we even have to give that disclaimer shows how far we've fallen. But all of us, me at the top of the list, we are drenched in pessimism, cynicism, despair, and fear. No one's thinking, hey, we're doing great, guys. The book of Revelation is not the blueprint for, hey, here's how we're going to survive this. The book of Revelation is the invitation to be people of hope, even in the midst of this. It's, it's like, I, I, um, I don't, I'm not a huge fan of airplanes, and primarily because um, they're, they are built for people who are approximately tw- 12 years old and weigh 80 pounds. I, wouldn't, I mean, I literally walked into, I didn't walk in, I scrunched into a restroom, bathroom, at a Southwest flight and went, I, I don't think I can turn around. You know what I'm saying? And I know some of you are here and you're, you're skinny and you're always cold. <laughs> Shut up. Just put a sweater on, eat some calories, join the rest of us. But flights for me, I just don't, I don't enjoy the whole experience, right? I just don't enjoy it. But whenever I'm flying home, right, I'm willing to endure the journey. Why? Oh, because I'm going home. I'll sit between two guys similar sized and we'll sit in the middle row right next to the restroom and I'll do it, not joyfully, but I'll do it. I'll endure it. Why? Because I know what home's like. And I know not just home in the future, but right now as I'm on the flight, there is a home that is worth visiting. And that's what the book's doing. The book's just saying, listen, the trouble, and there is trouble. The book is not naive about the reality of evil. No, it paints evil really realistically. But it invites us, even with that clear-eyed view of injustice and evil in the world, to be purveyors of hope. And we've just lost that part of our vocation in the American church. At least I have. Hope in our politics. Hope in our, and and again, it's all rooted in the fact that economies and pandemics and political parties can't touch this thing that God's doing. And so the goal over the next several weeks is that we would just simply become more hopeful. Not in some cliched like, oh, it's all good. It's all gonna work out in the end. No, not that. That's not hope. Biblical hope is rooted in the reality of disappointment and yet the awareness that the destination is still worth the journey. So that's what we're going to do. What I'd like to do this morning, and I love what our band did with the first two songs. There, there was a song that was talking about the roaring lion of Judah who comes to do battle. And then the second song was Worthy is the Lamb. 
And this juxtaposition is central to what Revelation's trying to do. God will judge the world and fight evil as a lamb who was slain. And that image drives the whole book forward. So we're going to sing songs that have a lot of that language in it. But today we thought we would take communion together because that is, that is the image of what the Lamb has done for us. Right? It's the image of what we've received, but also the invitation to become purveyors of that same posture. So here's what I'd like you to do. Look at me. We're going to play two songs. During one of those songs, you're invited to go to the tables around the room. At the table, there are pieces of paper where people write down prayer requests or things that we could like pray for or celebrate with. Please do that. I can't tell you how meaningful that is to pray over those every week. Then I want you to take communion. You can either dip it or you can take it in the COVID cup. You're going to bring it back to your seat and we're going to take it together. I know. As a community, it's going to be glorious. But that means train yourself to wait. <laughs> so we're going to go, we're going to get it, we're going to come back to our seats, and we're going to take it together, and then we're going to sing one more song. Last service, we did communion, people started to leave, we had a good song, and they were like, ah, oh, we're not sure what to do. So just know there's a song, okay? We're highly spiritual. This is how it works. Right, let me pray. Lord, we certainly know the goal of this whole enterprise isn't a bunch of information. Lord, we are a community and want to be a community that seeks to be formed more and more into the image of Jesus of Nazareth. And so to that end, would you help us encounter the scriptures afresh? As we take the Lord's Supper, God, may it escape just being a rote sort of practice, but again, a, a refreshing invitation to not only who you've been and who you will be, but who you are right now. Lord, as we pray and write our prayers, God, we trust in the community, Lord, that you speak, you listen, you answer, you bless. But most of all, God, I pray against the, in, the, the deep, deep fear that is infected and the residual anxiety that just floats around in our lives. I pray that you would set us free from this. We war against that power and principality and ask you, Lord, that you would just introduce us afresh to the beautiful and majestic Jesus of Nazareth and that that would provoke hope and that we would become people who are genuinely hopeful. So we thank you and we bless you in the name of our Christ. Amen.